I invite you to turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, we'll be reading verses 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 18. Word of our Lord from the Old Testament says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, Yahweh did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, Yahweh called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud, went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in You with all of our hearts. For just as You always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, You also never forsake those who make their boast in Your mercy. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The scripture is covered with signs and declarations, reminders, and hints toward us that God's desire is to be with us. God wants to be near us. He wants us to be near Him. As I was telling the children just a moment ago, God not only loves us, He likes us. He created you and me to be like Him. In fact, that was the, 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 the first lie, the, the, the most perplexing of all lies that the servant told Eve. 
God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you will be like Him, and He doesn't want that for you. She had just been created in the image of God. She had just been created and formed by God's very own hands. And God had breathed into her the breath of life. He created her in His image and in His likeness. And she believed the lie that God doesn't like me. And therefore God doesn't want to be near me. God does not want me to be like Him. God is keeping things from me. But the Scriptures are covered with passages declaring to us that God wants to be near us. That's what the tabernacle was all about in the Old Testament. And in the following chapters here in Exodus, you'll have as Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, God is dictating to him what the tabernacle is to look like, how wide it's to be, how tall its curtains are to be, how deep it's supposed to be, what are the chambers of it. What's it to be made of? What wood? How's that wood to be overlaid with gold and bronze? How many altars? How big are the altars? All of those details God is lining out for Moses so that He might present them to Israel. So that Israel cannot say, wonderful, God's done something for us. His servant Moses has done something for us. But actually so that Israel can begin the hard work of building that tabernacle. So that the congregation of the people can can put to use their gifts and their talents in constructing this building. But that building, that tabernacle or that tent that would foreshadow the temple that was to come, it was about God's presence with His people. They were to be a holy nation. His very own special people. And God was calling them out, bringing them out of Egypt, out from among the nations. To a place that was his very own place. We call it the promised land. The people before them called it Canaan. The tabernacle was to be God's dwelling place among his people. So that his people could be with him. The presence of God that had been lost in the garden was being restored in Israel. The new heavens and the new earth that the book of Revelation tells us about describe all the gems and all the beautiful images that are to to be a part of that new heaven and that new earth. They describe the throne room of God, but the whole discussion of the book of Revelation is about God bringing His presence to His people. Bringing all things in Christ together. God wants to be with us. See, the Scriptures are about teaching us that God has made room for us within His very own heart. In fact, Jesus told His disciples on the night He was betrayed, His very last night with His disciples, He said, I'm going away and I'm going away so that I can make a place for you. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And He says, I'm building on so that you can be there with us. The whole story of Scripture from the garden to the new garden, new Jerusalem, from the exodus of Egypt to the conquest of Canaan is about Yahweh establishing for Himself a people, putting them into a place that is His very own so that they might enjoy His very own presence. 
this concept of sanctuary. We've mentioned that word a couple of times this morning already. Mentioned it last week in our old sanctuary, in our old place. This concept of sanctuary simply means a holy place. It is a place of God's dwelling. It is where God meets with His people and where His people meet with Him. And this place has become for us a sanctuary. In fact, Rick was mentioning just this morning as we were gathering in here, he said, man, this place looks more like a church than what we used to have. (laughs) And he's absolutely right. I pointed out it's almost like a cathedral. We've got as much altar and communion room and worship room as we do a congregation. We've got kind of some annexes running along here. I said, all we need are some pillars. We were talking about where we could put in the baptismal font. This is... This is a sanctuary. This is a holy place. For He has called holy people to come and to meet with Him. A holy God. And He sends His Holy Spirit to enliven us. To inspire us. To meet with us. To point our eyes to Jesus, the Holy Messiah. God has invited us to come and to be with Him. He has invited us. He has made room for us within Himself. And He has thrown open the doors of heaven and He invites us to come to fellowship with Him. To commune with Him. We talk about having a relationship with God and relationships are built upon communication, conversation, and they are built upon time spent with. Fellowship. The scriptures here tell us that as Moses went up on the mountain, that the glory of God fell upon this holy mountain. Mount Sinai became a sanctuary of God's dwelling. The cloud descended, and as Israel looked up to the mountain, they saw consuming fire atop that mountain for 40 days as Moses met with a God who is a consuming fire. It's... It's perplexing, but it is astonishing that the the Scriptures here tell us that Israel saw God. It says not only did they see God, it says they saw God. God did not lay His hand upon them, and they ate and drank in His presence. I was reading a commentary this week that said this is kind of a foreshadowing of Holy Communion. This is the first instance of this idea of eating and drinking in the presence of God that we find in the Scriptures. They saw God. The Scriptures tell us that no man can see God in His very essence and remain unscathed. That no man can see God, can look upon His presence and not be consumed. But the text here says... They saw God and they ate and they drank with Him. God's glory fell. His radiance, His brilliance rested upon that mountain. Rested upon those elders. Rested upon Moses and his sidekick. The the Robin to his Batman, Joshua. God's glory fell And others were able to see God's presence. Now the church has has a warning. The church has a warning because when God's glory falls upon us, it is not so that we can be glorious. 
It's not so that we can look good. It's not so that we can look like we've got it all together. It's not so that others can see us. And that's always a temptation for God's people is to fall either into this this domain of spiritual pride where we think we've got it together and everybody else is missing out and we present ourselves that way or the the other the other domain of false humility where no 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 I don't have anything together I don't have anything together that's always a temptation I'll be honest with you as a as a pastor you know after a service um Sometimes you get told, hey, that was a great message, Pastor. And there's always that temptation. Oh, no, 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 no. That's false humility. Now, I'll tell you when I think I bomb it. I think I'm rolling pretty well right now. But I'll tell you when I think I bomb it. But but to always, no, 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 no. Now, Dr. Oswalt, um, we were at uh, Indian Springs uh, camp meeting this this past summer just for a couple of days. And Dr. Oswalt was up teaching. It's wasn't a service, he was teaching, and, uh, and after he was finished teaching, there arose an uproarious applause. Now, if you guys feel comfortable doing that, you're more than welcome, but um, it was a little different context. It was a teaching session, and this huge wave of applause broke out, and, and he had this huge jack-o'-lantern grin on his face like he always does, and he pointed it up, you know, saying that the glory is his, but... Um, There's always that temptation as God's people that when God does a work in our life, we either lift ourselves up as the ones who have it all together or we we try to pretend that no, 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 I'm I'm not making any strides. You remember, because I say it all the time, C.S. Lewis said, humility, true humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. No, I don't have anything together. It's simply forgetting to think about yourself. Life is about being lived for the sake of others. And if I'm making strides, that's wonderful because hopefully I'm able to help someone else out. Again, not because I've got it all together, but not because God hadn't put some up together. God's glory fell upon Israel, fell upon Moses here upon the mountain. It was a consuming fire, a cloud of glory. The scriptures here kind of drop some names for us. They tell us of Moses and of Aaron. His right, uh, tell us of his right-hand man, Joshua, who's being groomed. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've looked at passages where Moses is passing the baton on to, to Joshua. As Joshua is going to be the one leading Israel uh, into Canaan, into the promised land. And Moses was not to enter. But this week we're kind of taking a few steps back. Because Israel's just come out of Egyptian captivity. And it, Egypt is, is, has been conquered. And Israel is being established as God's very own covenant people. The people who are going to be His people in His place. Enjoying His presence. They're going to be in covenantal relationship with Him. And that's why they've gathered at the foot of this Mount Sinai to receive God's law. He is to be their king, their father, their patriarch. And they are to submit themselves to Him in covenantal faithfulness and obedience. But here we've got more names being dropped. It says that Nadab and Abihu are also with them. And the elders of Israel. Now those two names, Nadab and Abihu, you might be thinking, wait a minute. How do I recall those names? Who were those guys? Those were Aaron's sons, his eldest sons. And they were 
the, just uh, in the book of Leviticus, it tells us that they brought a profane fire of incense into the house of God and they were consumed. They faced God's judgment because they brought profane fire. Now it's interesting that they're mentioned here as being at the mountain. They're there when the glory falls. They are there with Israel. They see what's going on. And yet some time passes and they believe they can just approach God however they want. They can bring to God whatever they want. It's the, the, the sort of whatevs of worship. Where we think we can just waltz into God's presence. It tells us of the people who are eating and drinking here in the presence of God. And just a few chapters later, as they grow impatient, because Moses is on the mountain for 40 days, when Moses comes down from that mountain, as he descends back to his people, he throws down the tablets of stone that God has carved, and he says, what have you done as all of Israel is dancing around a golden calf? A golden calf that Aaron, the priest, said, this is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. Israel's got some ways to go. Israel's got quite a bit of work to be done. But the book testifies to us that there were some who were faithful. There were some Moses. Moseses. It's plural. It's not possessive. So I can say Moseses. There were some Joshuas. And thank God for those named Moses and those named Joshua. And those others who were found faithful. The key to their faithfulness was that in response to God's invitation, they gave themselves fully, without hindrance, without limitation, without caveat, without appendices to explain how I'm going to give myself, Lord. They gave themselves fully. God invited them and they responded. God made room for them within Himself, as His people. And they, in return, made room for God in their lives. Moses was willing to sit on the mountain for 40 days and say, yes, Lord. The text tells us also, even before that, as he's gone up the mountain, that he was willing to sit there for six days before the cloud descended and God began speaking to him. If we're to make room for God in our lives, we must be willing to wait before Him. We must be willing to spend time with Him. I was thinking this week, what are some areas in which we neglect, we often tend to neglect to make room for God in our lives? And one is the the, the chiefest is perhaps in our time. The time we neglect to spend with Him daily. 
Now, obviously, we've got 24 hours a day. You need some sleep. You need to eat. You need to work. Please be working. There's all sorts of things that eats up our time. And those are good things. God created us to work. God created us needing sleep. God created us to eat food. But we neglect to make room for God in our lives when we neglect to set aside time for Him. Time spent with Him daily. We tend to not make room for God in our schedules. Quite frankly, we over-busy ourselves. We over-schedule ourselves. We begin our week on Sunday and we're just trying to catch our breath from the week we had before. And before we know it, Wednesday or Thursday's gotten here and we're thinking, we just passed hump day and, and the week's almost over again. We set aside time for those things that matter for us in life. We carve out room in our schedules for interviews. We carve out room in our schedules for appointments that we have, whether they're dental appointments or medical appointments. We carve out time for those football games. I love football. Got to watch a little bit of it yesterday. We carve out time for parties that we're going to throw and cookouts we're going to have. We carve out time in our schedules. But then Sunday often is an an afterthought to us. It's late on Saturday night. It's been a long weekend. Got a rough week ahead. Boy, what are we going to do tomorrow, honey? I don't know. If we wake up, we might head to church. We tend to not make room for God in our budgets. We tend to not make room for God in our relationships. But God has made room for us. Because He likes us. And our response to Him ought to be to make room for Him in our lives. In the time that we spend with Him. The way we schedule ourselves. The way we spend our money. The way we share time with our friends and family. told the kids that we would be looking at a few ways that the scriptures tell us we are able to make room for God in our lives. The, some of the church fathers, um, some of the early fathers, but also even the, some of the, the later ones, you know, the father of Methodism, John Wesley, he spoke this way and many others spoke of waiting before God. And when they spoke of waiting before God, they typically added on a phrase to that. They called it waiting in the means of grace. Waiting for God. Not just passively waiting. But actively waiting before God. Kind of like. Getting in the tub. And waiting for it to fill up. You got the water on. You're in the water. And you're waiting for it to fill up. And those means of grace. That water that's filling up the tub. That tub that we're called to get into. The scriptures lay out plainly for us that we have opportunities to make room for God in our lives through the reading of Scripture. 
Not just the reading, but also the studying of Scripture. If you and I aren't spending time in the Word, then we are not making room for God in our lives. In fact, one of the things that Moses is doing as he's waiting before God is he's receiving the Word of God. He's receiving the instruction that he is then to take to the people. I like how... um, I like how some of the higher churches say once they read the the word, they they end by saying the word of God for the people of God and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Now that may seem kind of, you know, done out of rote memory. It may seem to be lifeless, but that's only if we are lifeless. But what that reminds us of is that God gives his word to his people and we ought to respond with a life of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. We wait for God in the Scriptures. We wait for God in prayer. We, we talked about spending time with folks, communicating with them, talking with them, whether it be on a computer as they live on the other side of the globe, or whether it be in person at a cafe, around the dining room table. And in prayer, we are invited to come and to commune with the God who created all things and who waits before us to see what is it that you would ask of me. Not just ask of me, but will you spend time with me? Will you hear from me and speak with me? Too often we rush into our prayer time. Lord, thank you for this day. We need you to do this and this. And I'll catch you later. I'll catch you on the flip side. But prayer is about communicating with God. About hearing from Him. And speaking with Him. We wait Before God, we make room for God in our lives in this context. Congregational worship. As the body of Christ gathers to worship, something is taking place that is of God's grace in this type of environment. As we lift our voices in song, as we rub shoulders with folks that we we haven't seen maybe for a few days, as we're around folks. Some, Some of us were never around kids and Now you're around kids. Some of us never get a chance to hold a baby, but you're handing off somebody else's baby. Some of you never get an opportunity to wipe a snotty nose other than your own. And that's what takes place when the body of Christ comes together. But we not only rub shoulders with one another, we lift up our voices in song. We hear God's Word from other voices as they come up and declare the word of our Lord. We meet in a place that's set aside, that's a bit different, that's a place we haven't met earlier in the week. And God promises to meet His people as they gather before Him. We make room for God in our lives through Christian conversation. Not just having Christian friends, but what's the Lord doing in your life? Let me tell you. Let me tell you what God's done for me this week. 
Or let me tell you how rough of a week I've had, but God has been with me. Sometimes Christian conversation is not, you know, uh, at camp when Lindsay and I were, were just getting into adulthood and just kind of getting into leadership at camp, there'd be some groups uh, of folks who before or after service they'd get, to get around one another, they'd be kind of like preaching at each other like, boy, let me tell you what happened. I was down at the pool earlier today and I was praying with this kid. He gave his heart to Jesus and they, they'd kind of, you know, it, rock them, sock them type thing. They'd huddle up and start talking all exciting. Sometimes that's what Christian, Christian conversation can look like, but sometimes Christian conversation can be much more quiet and much more uh, less energized. Sometimes Christian conversation is, I need you to pray for me. I'm hurting. I need you to pray for these folks that I'm bearing in my heart and, it, and it's their, their head. But Christian conversation is one of the ways that we make room for God in our lives. Wholesome books. Now I'll tell you, you need to read theology and church history and that sort of thing, but that may not be your cup of tea. Find your cup of tea. Find some wholesome books that can encourage you, that can inspire you, that can make you think bigger thoughts of God. They can help you. And if you need help being directed towards some of those books, I've got... Hundreds in my library, and I've got hundreds of others that are not in my library that I could recommend to you, and I'll help you find them. And here's something we typically don't think of that is a prime avenue for making room for God in our lives, and we find it all throughout the Scriptures. Works of mercy and compassion. When you help someone else, particularly as Pastor Lane used to tell us, when you help someone else who cannot return the favor, when you do works of mercy and compassion, God, I'm not going to say God will bless you because we typically think, oh, that means He's going to put more money in my checking account. But God will pour out His grace upon your life because He wants to use you as a channel of grace into the lives of others. When you feed the homeless, God will give you His grace. It's not that you're trying to buy it. It's you're simply trying to spend yourself for Jesus and He will not let you run fully dry. You may feel like you're getting dry. When you care for those less fortunate, when you deliver meals to folks who can't get out of their houses, God will, I'll use the word, He will bless you. When you help others, when you show mercy, when you show compassion, when you hold your tongue, when you've got a quick word that would be perfect for this person, that's a work of mercy, compassion. God will pour out His grace. And His grace will fall upon you his grace will fall upon us. His grace will fall upon His church as a glorious cloud of His presence, as His consuming fire kindles among us. The question is, for us, for me, 
for you is where are we going to go up that mountain? We've assembled along the base of the mountain. God has called us into His presence. God has made room for us in His heart and in His life. What sort of room will we make for Him in ours? Will we say, Lord, I'm content to just have a little bit. When we say, Lord, I'll get as high up that mountain as you'll allow me to go. I want to be where the fire is. I want to be where the glory falls. I want to make room for you in my life. As much room as I'm able, Lord, help me. Help me to take baby steps, if that's what it takes. But help me to start chipping away time in my life for scripture and prayer and for others. Help me to start prioritizing the body of Christ on Sundays. Help me to start prioritizing giving to you and to your work through the church. Lord, help me. Because I want to make room for you in my life. Let's pray.